So our text this evening is John chapter 5. In our series through the Gospel of John, we come to John chapter 5, and our text will be verses 1 through 18. Hear God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Imagine a world without illness, no fevers, no body aches, no malfunctioning organs or disabilities. I think that word disability pretty much sums up what we're talking about. It means an ability that your body used to have that is no longer working right and is now functioning in an opposite way, a disability. Without the fall, there would be no disabilities. But our bodies would do what they were intended to do without breaking down. But Adam did fall into sin, and so we must bear the consequences of the curse of sin as it affects our bodies. And one of the main struggles that we have in life as a result of the fall is is health problems. Uh, We are often conscious of not feeling well, or at least not functioning like we would prefer. And for some of us, health can be a very large concern to have a Life deeply affected by illness makes it doubly hard to imagine what it would be like to have a world without illness. The man in our text had it particularly rough, even though all of us have faced illness. There are a few of us who have had, had, had anything as rough as not being able to walk for 38 years. The man in our text, that was his life. He was there at the pool of Bethesda longing for healing His goal was to get into the water when the water was stirred, but he was not able to get in soon enough. And so his only hope of a cure was proving to be in vain. Whether he had an incurable injury or disease, there was nothing, humanly speaking, that could be done to reverse his condition. But this is exactly when Jesus stepped in and delivered him 
from his misery. Taken as the theme of these verses, Jesus' healing of a man at the pool of Bethesda, and um, considering these verses under three points, first of all, what? What is the condition of this man, and what did Jesus do, and then why? Why Jesus healed him, which was to provide an opportunity for confronting the greater problem of his sin. And then third, with what result? There was opposition from the religious leaders, an opportunity for this man to repent, an opportunity for Jesus to witness to his identity. So we begin with what? And let's begin with some preliminary matters that concern the context of this man's healing. For we are told that it was after Jesus' second sign in Galilee that the events of our text took place. And the second sign was, of course, Jesus healing that, that son of, that, of this official that, that uh, desires his son's healing, and Jesus heals him by merely speaking. He's miles away from this sick boy, and yet Jesus is able to heal him by merely speaking. The, initials, the, uh, the official's uh, faith was initially weak and inadequate, but he came to understand who Jesus was and believed, we are told, along with all of his household. I believe that this man's faith was recorded for us as a message to the Jews of their need to seek Jesus as more than just a sensational miracle worker, just, just a person who could perform these signs and make their earthly lives better. As the divine Son of God, capable of healing by merely speaking his will, he was the Messiah, and he had come to bring an eternal kingdom free of the curse of sin and therefore was to be trusted for salvation, not just merely earthly blessings, but trusted for salvation unto eternal life. And our text, starting with verse 1 of chapter 5, says, After this there was a feast of the Jews. The Greek for after this is more indefinite than other Greek phrases that could have been used. And what we have doesn't necessarily indicate that a long period of time has gone by, but we also know that it was not a short period of time. Uh, because there's a, a separate word, separate Greek phrase for that. We know that Jesus is now in that period of his ministry that we call the Great Galilean Ministry. That took place from December in the year 27 AD, and it ran all the way through April of the year 29 AD, so around 16 months. And so this event is happening somewhere within those 16 months. The, the feast of the Jews that prompted Jesus to go to Jerusalem. We don't, we don't know exactly what feast this is, but it's probably Passover, though it could be the Feast of Tabernacles. But either way, Jesus has temporarily left Galilee to return to, to Jerusalem for this religious feast. And the scene opens with Jesus by a pool called Bethesda. He's near the Sheep Gate, which is a gate in the wall of Jerusalem through which sheep were led probably for the purpose of being sacrificed in the nearby temple court. This pool, of which our text speaks, was discovered by archaeologists in 1888 in connection with the repair of the Church of St. Anne in the northeastern part of Jerusalem. And we are told that a faded fresco on the wall pictures an angel troubling the water. But in the time of the Lord, there were five roofed colonnades around this pool, where the sick could rest out of the weather. Now, you may have noticed, I'm not sure if you have, um, and uh, this depends upon your version of the Bible, but as I was reading through the ESV, we jump, jumped from verse 3 to verse 5. 
There is no verse 4 in the ESV. Now, if we consider the King James, the end of verse 3 in the King James Version informs us that the blind, lame, and paralyzed were, quote, waiting for the moving of the water. And then we have verse 4, which reads this way, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever disease, whatsoever disease he had. Uh, that verse was found in various manuscripts that were available at the time of the King James translation, but since then the uh, better and more ancient manuscripts do not have those words, and so the ESV has omitted them. And uh, in response, we agree that if these words were part of the original text, we would expect them to be in the older and best manuscripts. Now we could also understand how these words would be added as an explanation or a perceived explanation of the disturbance of the water. Well, even if we were to accept verse 4 as scripture, it's not necessary to believe that the agitation that occurred in the water was actually due to an angel. Uh, the explanation could be viewed as the implied opinion of a number of people of that day, including the sick man. And yet it's also possible, certainly possible, that an angel would periodically appear at this pool and was used of God to stir the waters and grant healing. Still, I would argue that what is likely going on with this explanation of an angel is a superstitious explanation for a natural phenomenon. This was mineral spring, and it was not uncommon for mineral springs. It's not uncommon, um, even in the present tense, for mineral springs to have sudden bursts of geothermal water bubbling up from an underground spring perhaps bringing with them discharges of especially mineral-rich mineral rich water that was believed, whether legitimately or not, to bring healing to those who are able to soak in its healing properties. And it's not uncommon even today for mineral springs to be sought by the ill for healing. Nevertheless, we see that the man does end up be, being healed, but it's not by means of this spring, it's not by means of an angel, but by the power of, of the Lord Jesus. Now, whether this man's hope of healing by means of getting into the pool was legitimate or not, he really had no chance of being healed this way because he couldn't get into the water in time. And I'm reminded by this man's experience of how many today are desperately searching for a cure to their health problem or health problems. There's inevitably someone who has, was healed by some means, and so others flock to try it. And usually not everyone has the same result, and so something else is tried, and often in time something else yet, because that possible cure also failed. And healing can be elusive for whatever reason. For some, the, the cures are not affordable. Some cures are, some cures are just not possible, even for us, to try for various reasons. But it's not, of course, at all uncommon for people to want to get well and to be willing to try what they can. Well, the man in our text had very limited options, as well as the rest of the people that were there. We read that the blind were there, the lame. That word can refer to those who can't walk at all, but it also refers to those who have lost a foot or who even walk with a limp. And then there are the paralyzed. The word in the Greek translated as paralyzed literally means dried up, withered, wasted away and could refer to those whose legs and arms have atrophied because they are paralyzed, or could refer to those who 
first have withered limbs for whatever reason that then affect their mobility in various ways. The man in our text fit into this third category. He is described as lying there on a mat and not able to walk. At the same time, he is not paralyzed from the neck down because he was um, able to some degree to stir himself up when the water was, was agitated. He was able to move himself toward the water, presumably by using his arms. But when he is healed, apparently his legs are the focus for he is told to get up take up his bed, and walk. So in some, this man was a paraplegic who for 38 years was not able to walk. We can assume that his legs were shriveled up because of a lack of use for that many years. And clearly this man did not have a lot of options for healing in his day. There was no surgery. They didn't have the medications we have today. Likely he had a spinal injury that even today is incurable. But this man was holding on to the hope that if he could just get into this pool at the right time, he would be healed. But always before he could get in on time, basically somebody would step in, and so he had no hope of ever being healed. Now, we don't have reason to believe that he lived there at the pool. He probably had family or friends that dropped him off there. We don't know if this was a daily thing. And it's actually uncertain from the Greek whether in verse 6 the idea is that the man had already been sick a long time or had been laying there a long time. It's possible that he was dropped off daily there for years. And it's sad that no one was willing to put him into the pool, but then again, his family and friends probably had jobs that they had to get to. They couldn't sit around hour after hour, day after day, waiting for this stirring of the waters. Perhaps the paralyzed man's family or friends didn't believe in the healing that was purported to take place there, but they were willing to humor him enough to bring him there. But regardless, this man is at the end of his options for healing. He has nothing else to do. There was no doctor. There was no protocol. There was no therapy. There was no medicine to help. This mineral spring was it, and even that was not working. It's interesting to note the stance that Jesus took toward this man Often the sick were brought to Jesus for healing, but in this case, Jesus seeks out this man as in, in, that he intends to heal. He goes to a man who, it seems, knows nothing about him. And we see in Jesus' actions his great compassion and mercy. He singles out this particularly poor sufferer, a man who was neglected, who was overlooked, who was forgotten. He had no one willing to put him into the pool when the water was stirred and Jesus, by means of divine insight and knowledge, knew that the man had been there a long time. He knew that he had been an invalid for 38 years. And he saw and he engaged with this this man, was merciful to this man who was basically invisible to his society. We don't know why Jesus chose this particular man except That for Jesus, the typical way that he uses his sovereign initiative is to help those who are the most needy. And uh, we're we're thankful for that. Um, Perhaps this explains why he begins his interaction with this man by asking, do you want to be healed? Now we know that of course this man wants to be healed. And we know that Jesus knows this man's heart and knows his history and therefore knows 
that this man is desperate for healing. So the Lord's question cannot possibly be a probing for what will no doubt be an obvious answer. So what then is the purpose of this question? Do you want to be healed? There's basically two answers that are given to that question. There's what's called the psychological explanation, which says that the Lord is here preparing this man for his miraculous healing by confronting his great need and, 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 and confronting his desire for healing and, and even getting this man to verbalize it. And this is so that when it takes place, he will appreciate it all the more. And I thought of an analogy to this. Suppose you were doing hard work um, outside, yard work on a hot summer afternoon, and knowing that you are desperately thirsty, I really don't need to ask you any questions. I could just bring you some cold lemonade without any kind of introduction. Or I could ask, are you thirsty? Would you like me to bring some lemonade? And after getting an enthusiastic response of yes, I would then bring out the lemonade And I'm certain that with the second method, you would appreciate me and the lemonade more. Well, that could be what the Lord here is doing. By the Lord's question, the man is led to explain his dire situation, having no chance of getting into the water, as well as a chance to describe his persistence at being there at the pool day after day. And the result is that the depth of his desire for healing is clear. And in fact, some have suggested that What's being laid out here is the fact that the Lord heals, the Lord blesses those who recognize their need. And the question is, does this man recognize his need? And the man passes this test of being someone we expect to appreciate healing if it were to take place. An interesting turn of events, another explanation goes in an entirely different direction. The question is, a test really of this man's character, and he ends up not passing the test. Through Jesus asking him a question with an obvious answer, the man's patience is being tested. Is this man angry over his circumstances? Is this man grouchy? Is this man one who is going to be thankful for healing, or does he think he deserves it? The question that the Lord asks sets this man off. And we might not immediately read this man's response in verse 7 to the Lord's question as the ramblings of a grouchy man, but it actually makes sense that this is in fact what we have when we see what this man is like in the rest of the story. You already know that Jesus ends up healing this man. Jesus ends up calling out to this man, get up, take up your bed and walk. And verse 9 tells us, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Well, what happens next? The religious leaders confront this healed man because he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. They declare that by doing this, he's breaking God's law. Well, what does the healed man do? What does he say in response? He will essentially throws Jesus under the bus. He wants to make clear that he's only doing what Jesus told him to do. He doesn't want trouble with the authorities and he blames Jesus. But we also notice he doesn't even know Jesus' name. For when the religious leaders ask him who it was who told him to get up his to take up his bed and walk, he doesn't know. Now it's true that Jesus slipped away in order to avoid the crowd in that place, and it seems that he didn't want undue attention from the crowds or religious leaders or both after this miracle. And for this reason, we might be able to excuse the man for not knowing Jesus' name. 
Perhaps he wanted to know his healer's name and to express thankfulness, but Jesus was gone before he even had a chance to ask. That's what it sounds like John is reporting. Nevertheless, when Jesus converses with him again, later this time in the temple, the man then apparently figured out Jesus' name. But even so, we don't read anything of this man responding with joy or thankfulness or faith. We read that he went away and reported Jesus to the authorities by telling them the name of his healer. And that report becomes the context for the Jews persecuting Jesus. When we see how this man reacts to Jesus after the healing, it sheds light, I believe, on the tone in which he first responded to Jesus. So that when Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? The man thinks he's answering a stupid question. And his response is all about complaining that there's no one to help him. He makes it clear that others selfishly push him, push past him into the water. And since no one cares about him, he has no prospect of healing. So basically he tells Jesus, obviously I want to be healed. It's evident for me trying to get into the water, but it's never going to happen because others beat me into the water. And I might be able to be healed if just someone would put me in this water, but I have no one. Jesus tells this hopeless man, this grouchy man, to get up, take up his bed, and walk. And the man was immediately healed, for he was then and there able to take up his bed and walk. This brings us to our second point in consideration of why Jesus healed this man. This is the third sign that Jesus performed, though this time we're not told specifically that it was the third sign. Chapter 6 will go on to tell us that Jesus was performing a number of signs on the sick. But we're given the details of this particular healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda. And so I'm taking this as the third sign. And the details indicate that there are lessons to be learned from this event. Um, The fact that the apostle John would lay out this particular event in fairly, uh, fairly good detail. Well, naturally, the healing of this Man is a sign of Jesus' identity as the divine Son of God. Only God has the power to heal a man in an instant who for 38 years has been incurable, a man who has withered legs, dried up withered legs, and in an instant can stand upon them and walk. That's divine power. And it's a sign of Jesus' mercy joined with power that he would specifically seek out this desperately ill man and heal him. But there's more. The main message really that comes out of this event concerns the Sabbath. The Jewish religious leaders referred rather generally to, they're referred to here rather generally as the Jews, they had all kinds of man-made regulations regarding proper Sabbath observance. Now, on the surface, we might think that, of course, these these men are just seeking conformity to God's word. For example, in Jeremiah 17, God's people were told to bear no burden on the Sabbath day. In Nehemiah 13, verse 15, the admonition took the form of condemning those who were bearing items to the marketplace in order to sell them on the Sabbath. What is clear from Nehemiah, as well as from Further investigation of what God is intending in these kinds of regulations is that God is forbidding the type of burden bearing that is associated with one's everyday labor. 
It's, it's, it's talking about bearing burdens as part of one's labor for gain while engaged in trading and marketing. And so the question to contemplate is what God means by work when he says not to work on the Sabbath day. Well, the religious leaders in Jesus' day had come up with 39 categories of work, including taking or carrying anything from one domain to another. Because this man was carrying his mat on the Sabbath day in a way that had nothing to do with earning a living, it should have been clear that God's law was not applicable, but the religious leaders with their 39 categories of labor had determined otherwise. What the man was doing by simply carrying his mat as he walked was, according to their rules, unlawful work and therefore a sinful violation of the Sabbath. What is clearly a greater concern to these religious police is the man who is going around telling people that they can ignore one of these 39 categories of prohibited work. This man was opposing their authority. This man was opposing, in their minds, the authority of God's law, and he must be stopped. This is what is behind their desire to hear from the healed man who it was that told him to violate the Sabbath. Now, Jesus certainly knew the kind of reaction that he was going to get from the religious leaders, and Jesus healed this man, even though sovereignly knowing that their response was going to be a very negative response. So then, why did he do this? Well, first, Jesus was indicating that he has the authority to challenge their interpretations of God's law. He was communicating to the religious leaders that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, although that's not the wording that he uses at this particular juncture. He will use that wording later. But Jesus was directly challenging the parts of the religious system of the Jews that were unbiblical. And second, Jesus was beginning to allow hatred to build against him that would eventually result in his crucifixion. Now, in many instances, Jesus just backed away in hiding when things got intense or he told people not to report the miracle that he had just performed in order to slow down the antagonism against him. But it was also his will to incite opposition to a certain degree. And here what he does is designed to get the ball rolling. Now he never incited uh, people's anger by doing things that were wrong or even inappropriate, but he did incite anger by challenging people's pride and by asserting his authority. So why did Jesus heal the man at the pool? Because this was an occasion to assert that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and that ultimately the law is his law. And therefore he is willing to challenge distortions of it, even if it means confronting the religious elite were not used to anyone challenging their false teachings. He was indirectly telling the religious leaders that their view of the Sabbath was wrong. The Sabbath is not about obeying rules as a part of meriting salvation. The, the Sabbath day was not meant to be a day so regulated by rules against work that people can't do anything but lay around in idleness. Jesus was teaching a Sabbath marked by restful work. And I want to take some time next time to talk to to some degree about what that means. It sounds contradictory, but Jesus was teaching a Sabbath marked by restful work, the right kind of work. But most of all, the healing of this man was the occasion for Jesus calling this man to faith in him. 
Jesus mercifully heals this man when he had no human earthly hope of healing. And Jesus was in this way confronting this man with his ability to push back the consequences of sin with divine power. So like the other miracles, this was a way to show sinners that he is the one who can save them from their sins. And that the healing of this sick man was meant to carry a spiritual message is confirmed when Jesus meets up with this healed man later in the temple and says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus says, confronting this man with the fact that it is sin that accounts for his illness. Without sin, without the fall, we would have perfect health and we would have no physical disabilities. And that this man lived in misery for 38 years and that Jesus then was able to instantly heal him should prompt him to think about his spiritual condition. And Jesus is pressing this with him. He's telling the man that if he continues to sin, that is to live in sin without any reconciliation with God, something far worse than being paralyzed is going to happen to him. Jesus is pointing to the eternal punishment of sinners that will be meted out on Judgment Day to all of those who fail to make use of God's provision for sin in Jesus. Jesus came as the sacrifice for sin in order to die in our place. And we certainly understand that this man's not going to understand all that Jesus would do in accomplishing our salvation, but he had the opportunity to see in Jesus the one who could grant him deliverance from sin. He had just experienced divine power delivering him from one of the consequences of sin, namely this debilitating health issue. And now Jesus is warning him specifically about continuing to sin and the prospect of something worse happening. So this man's being presented with the danger of his sin and the opportunity to look to Jesus for the answer. And we may ask, well, how do we stop sinning? And I can imagine someone saying, well, we can't even stop sinning in this life. But we can stop sinning deliberately, which is part of repentance. And we can stop sinning in the sight of God when we are justified by faith. And ultimately, we will stop sinning when we go to be with the Lord as believers, as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us through and through so that we no longer sin. In all of these various ways to escape the negative consequences of continuing to live in sin are only possible through union with Christ by his Holy Spirit and through faith. And whatever the man didn't understand could have been explained by Jesus But was he willing to ask questions out of concern for his sin? Was he desiring to escape the coming judgment? We come now to our third and concluding point, which focuses on what ended up happening with this healed man and the religious leaders. Did the healed man come to faith? Did the religious leaders submit to Jesus' interpretation of the Sabbath? We see on the part of the healed man is nothing to indicate saving faith in the Messiah who miraculously helped him. Everything he does indicates a disregard for Christ. When he got in trouble with the religious leaders for carrying his bed on the Sabbath, he cast the blame on Jesus. When he learned the name of the man who healed him, he reported Jesus to to the religious leaders, and he knew that they were angry with him. It's clear that this man was not at all thankful for what Jesus had done. All he wanted was to be healed. All he wanted was to not be in trouble with the religious establishment. 
And when Jesus lovingly confronted this man with his sin out of spiritual concern for his soul, we read nothing of any positive response. We are told he went away. And it was then that he reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. What a startling thing to see a sinner so hard and so untouched after being so mercifully healed and spiritually warned by Christ. What we have to inevitably conclude is that this man who was lying there by the pool felt proudly entitled to healing. He did not humbly acknowledge that he deserved nothing good from God. We conclude that he must have been angry with God, angry with his neighbors for their lack of concern for him. And it's only this attitude and perspective that can explain how he would turn on Jesus with such ingratitude. We also notice that the opposition that we would expect from the religious establishment did in fact develop. We are told that the Jews were persecuting Jesus over the things he was doing on the Sabbath. And this provided the opportunity for Jesus to give witness to his identity in a unique way. He answered their objections to his Sabbath view with the words of verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. Significantly, Jesus makes the point of God, of uh, calling God his father and verse 18 explains that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because, and here's the reason, not only was he breaking the Sabbath and we might add also teaching others to do the same, right, based on the context here, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. The Jews understood that when Jesus claimed to be the son of God that, and that God was his father, that this meant that he was claiming to be equal to God. In other words, God himself. And then there is the Sabbath issue. Jesus' defense of his Sabbath view is to explain the Sabbath from God's own perspective, uh, his own perspective. When God created the world, and we understand right from John 1, that Jesus the Word created the world. And when he did it in the space of six days and then rested on the seventh day, what Jesus is asserting is that even though, yes, God finished creating the world and entered into an ongoing rest from creating, this doesn't mean that he's been inactive. He's been working, Jesus says, until now. He never quit working. The Father is working. He is working And the point is that the Sabbath is not to be equated with idleness. Bigger picture is that Jesus is including himself as one who is working. The Father is working, and as the Son, Jesus is working. Jesus is conducting divine work. He's accomplishing the plan of his Father to save sinners. And you and I certainly can't do the work that Christ has done. Uh, that Christ did in in saving sinners. But like him, we must never rest from working, working for God's kingdom, working to advance the kingdom of Christ. That is a work that we are required to continue to do. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy and grace revealed here. And Father, we just pray that we would never have a hard heart in response to your mercy. That, Father, we would recognize that in Christ we have a Savior from sin, and not just from the consequences of sin that that affect us in our earthly lives, but, Father, we look to Christ to save us eternally from the condemnation that our sins deserve. We look to him 
to pay the penalty of sin for us and to reconcile us to you. Father, we thank you for the hope that one day we will be completely set free from sin and all of the consequences of sin. But this is something that we cannot accomplish. This is something that you alone can do. So, Father, may we pay attention to this sign of healing, recognizing that even in this impossible situation, as far as we are concerned, Jesus was able to help and to heal. So, Father, we look to you to help us and to accomplish the salvation that we are not able to accomplish for ourselves. And Lord, may we be people who are at work, not idle, but at work, even on the Sabbath in ways that please you, that advance your kingdom. We, Lord, recognize that, that rest on the Sabbath is not just sitting around doing nothing, but we are to be involved in worship. We are to be involved in acts of mercy. We are to be involved in, in gospel work. Father, we pray that we would recognize our calling, that we would follow the example of Jesus, and that we would recognize the tendency we have to create our own rules and our own ideas of what you require. May we continually go back to your word and recognize that you alone are the Lord of your law. And We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.